It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh, and with me as always is Mr. Odd, John Chalkowski. Uh, hello everybody. Today, we decided to, uh, we originally wanted to do a show about Nikola Tesla and his involvement here in Pittsburgh, because he was involved in Pittsburgh and lived here for a year of his life. What I started uncovering uh, was uh, another man who many people in Pittsburgh especially know who he is, and that is George Westinghouse Jr. So George Westinghouse Jr., uh, later just dropping the junior and going by George Westinghouse Sr., or just George Westinghouse, (laughs) became a household name to many people growing up uh, because of the invention of uh, television, radio, uh, the electric refrigerators, dishwashers, uh, fans, you know, you name it. Uh, but who was this man and how did he convince someone as legendary as Nikola Tesla to move to Pittsburgh and begin working here? And that led me down a path, which I was very surprised to find. I, uh, was ignorant almost to the history of George Westinghouse, other than I, I knew the fact that he had an air brake, you know, and I, I knew that he uh, did indeed have Tesla here and had Westinghouse Electric Company and and uh, powered, you know, Niagara Falls, you know, hydroelectric power. And and I knew like little bits and pieces, but I never really put all of it together till now. And the story is much more fascinating than I ever thought. And it's uh, better than just talking about his... Uh, relationship with Tesla and just talking about Westinghouse, the man himself. And that's what we're going to do today. And uh, I'm going to begin with a preface from a book that was written about George Westinghouse uh, soon after he passed away, which was in 1914 at the age of 68. And this was a book here, and it says, although George Westinghouse was, in the broadest sense, a public servant, my own acquaintance with him was only social. As he left behind him no diaries, no files of personal correspondence, and scarcely any other sources of supply on which the biographer of a political or military celebrity depends for much interesting material, I have been obliged to reply, in the main, on the memories of the friends of Mr. Westinghouse, local tradition and gossip of the neighborhood where he had lived, the records of the courts and minutes of public meetings, corporate records and the partnership account books, old volumes of newspapers and magazines, miscellaneous scrapbooks, and the like. One day, let us hope, we may have from the pen of some well-known expert in technology an adequate summary of what the whole world industrial advancement owes to the work of this eminent inventor. The mission of the present volume is simply human. It will have been accomplished if it conveys to the young man of today a sense of his career will depend for success less on the splendor of its start than on the spirit in which he pursues it far less on capital than on courage, on worry than on watchfulness, on pool than on persistence. So I love how he says in this preface, um, this is as much as we can figure out today because this man left no diaries, left no correspondences, and in fact uh, only with someone in the future when technology arises would someone finally uncover the true story of this genius. And that's kind of a little bit what we're going to do today. And uh, Westinghouse Jr. was born in 1846 in New York. And he grew up, he was the eighth out of ten children. Okay. Uh, Which wasn't really uncommon at the time. Was not uncommon at the time, no. And uh, oddly enough, the only one out of all the children to be named George Jr. 
uh, and uh, was just a failure at school, could care less, was kind of a rowdy kid, uh, never did well in educated settings, you know, because he was a like a tinkerer, and uh, he liked to fiddle with machinery. His dad owned an agricultural supply shop, kind of like a manufacturing shop in, in New York, and when he turned 14 years old, George Jr. began working in the shop with his dad and learning from other apprenticing under people who work there and uh, was just tinkering around and, and, you know, deciding kind of what he wanted to do in life because he, he didn't really know. He just goes work in his dad's shop. His dad thought he would not amount to anything. Um, he even gave him a challenge one day, which was uh, he wanted to go to a party, George Weissinghouse Jr. And he, his dad said, look, you can't leave until all this pipe is cut. We need all this pipe cut for this, some kind of new machine we're making. So George invented a machine that could cut the pipe, you know, which would normally take somebody over a day, do it in four hours and be done with it, and then he went to the party. <laughs> so his dad just did not approve of this. He was not impressed that his son invented some kind of way that uh, could make things more efficient in his factory. And uh, George Jr. became kind of enraptured at the time, <clears throat> now being in his early, uh, early, early teens, uh, with the advent of the Civil War, which was hitting America. At the beginning of the Civil War, it was considered almost glamorous to go up uh, go up and join and fight for your country. Uh, not until a couple of years go on did the, the horrors and the realities of war kind of set in with a half a million people being killed. And uh, he, his father refused to have him join. In fact, uh, two of his older brothers were already in the service, and one of them was killed in the Civil War. And uh, George sent, saw this as kind of like an opportunity to to go there and serve his country, and he, he demanded to do it. So when he was 17 years old, he joined up, and he, he ended up becoming uh, 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 joining into the Navy and started tinkering on kind of naval ships there. And that's kind of where he got his experience, not only with discipline, with the military trained him to do, but in patience and 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 receiving orders and trying to do them in the most efficient and fast way he could. And uh, he, he learned this all from the Army. It's something that kind of continued uh, and imbued in him his entire life. Um, later in life, in fact, he held a uh, the, the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, which was the union organization or the, the social organization for the union soldiers who fought in the Civil War, was going to have a meeting of their members. And uh, they chose Pittsburgh, to have this meeting and over 6,500 civil war veterans showed up and George Westinghouse hosted the event at one of his factories, uh, being a civil war veteran himself, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, well, I, I mean, I, I know George Westinghouse and I know that Westinghouse owned KDKA for so many years and I knew a little bit about the guy, but I never knew that he was a civil war veteran. That's, that's oh, it gets crazy. better. It gets better. So wait and you wait and you hear the story because I mean it's uh it blew my mind too. So at the age of twenty three, okay, he's still working, he comes back from the army, okay, the war is over. It, by this time it's late eighteen sixties, eighteen sixty eight, sixty nine, and he uh across the country, uh railroads have been going on now for a good, you know, twenty something years. However, there was no real efficient way to stop a railroad car. And the more things you had on a railroad car, like more cars you had on that engine, you know, that they were pulling, the more heavier it was, the harder it was to stop. Back in those days, they had a, a, an actual position that you could, you know, work for. The railroad is called a brake man. And a brake man, how that worked was each individual car had their own individual set of brakes. 
and all of them had to be stopped manually by one guy. <laughs> so you'd have 15 brakemen standing and riding on top of the cars as they were going, no matter if it was rain, sleet, snow, whatever the case might be. Um, when if there was like a cow or something in the middle of the road or another train or people, whoever, whatever was in the middle of the road, uh, that you would need at least a few miles to stop the train, especially if you were going at full speed. And uh, most of the time it was so jerky and cumbersome and, 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 you know, one guy could slowly stop his car, but the other person was doing it real fast and everything was all out of line and it was becoming a public nuisance. The fact where so many people were dying in railroad accidents because not only the smokiness of them, you know, being steam engines, you couldn't see ahead of you. So, like, you you know, you got so much steam coming in front of you, uh, the engineer just couldn't see or the conductor couldn't see another train coming or people on the tracks and they would just be killed. So something needed to be done. Everyone kind of knew this, except for the railroad companies. They uh, they didn't really care that people were getting killed. Uh, in fact, if Brakeman was killed while working, they would just shove him off the side and sometimes just leave you there on the side of the tracks. And there was no, with no thought about it. So, uh, you know, this is a different time period where the monopolies, you know, in these railroad industries were the employers of the country. And uh, you kind of had to do what they said or you just, uh, you know, didn't have a job. So he, uh, Westinghouse was at, you know, his dad's shop, and he was reading in the newspapers about this uh, new drilling technology where some guy had this kind of hammer, uh, and then he connected up to, like, an air compressor, and that through the power of compressed air, able to use that and attach it to this hammer and nail it and dig a hole into a mountainside, you know, con- you know cement, concrete or whatever, you know, like this rocks and uh, do it more efficient, more than anything that's ever been done before, more powerful than dynamite even, you know, and he figured if air is more powerful than dynamite <laughs> and it can go through a, a mountain, why can't I use the same technology to power things over long distances uh, through compressed air? Because you could use that compressed air concept with many different things. And that's exactly what he did when he thought about this braking system for trains. He figured if I can install some kind of air compressor in the first, you know, on the engine and then little mini ones throughout it, you know, the conductor himself could just pull a lever and cause all of the brakes to go systematically and all at the same time, uh, controlled upon whatever speed that the conductor wanted to do it. And um, they install, he convinced people enough that it might be a possibility and he manufactured some himself and did some test runs and during the one test run, famously, he uh, uh, they were on the speeding train, right, and they were coming through a stop. It was one of his tests, and uh, sure enough, there was a horse and buggy uh, in the middle of the train tracks. <laughs> Suddenly, it just comes out of nowhere, uh, and they're approaching like this town stop, and the conductor hit the brakes, and he, while everyone got shoved around the cars and everything like this, because such a sudden stop, but it did not kill the horse and the buggy, and proved that it was a safe method. And this and it was witnessed by tons of people whoever was in that town like watching this experiment, and uh, it was such a phenomenal accidental success that uh, he was able to found the what later became the Westinghouse Air Brake Company or Wabco, today called Wabtech, uh, at the age of twenty three. <laughs> so and Wabtech is now in Homestead. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Still to this day, and uh, it's still doing the same type of things. So that same air brake system is still used in trains today. Also used in large rigs, uh, you know, trucks, uh, the same kind of concept. You know, the heavier loads, it was easier to use compressed air to stop it than an actual 
manual braking system. I mean, like how you could take someone's idea and make it better. You know, that, that's kind of a recurring role that Westinghouse and all these people that we're going to talk about play. How you can use an idea like that pneumatic hammer with the air compressor and saw the potential of something like that and to make it into something brand new that everybody in the world could use later on. So while this this happened in 1869, okay, is when he founded this company, he had enough capital because he invented a couple other things for the railroad lines, including uh, a part of a rail track that was called the Rail Frog, right, where you could, uh, if a train was derailed, it could easily get the train back on the tracks, which was unheard of. He also uh, invented a, a thing that connects trains, you know, like the little piece that's in between the trains themselves. Yeah. Yeah, well, he invented a new way to have, like, a pressurized spring in there so it wasn't so, you know, jarred up. And those things are still in use to this day on trains. <laughs> so um, this is something that was invented that long ago. Well, he made enough money in these other little inventions, little patents that he was doing, that he was uh, able to move out of New York and come to Pittsburgh. He came to Pittsburgh because it was such a um, industrial town at that time period. You know, all the iron was starting up. The glassworks were already here. You know, the steel industry was just beginning. And uh, he saw it was a good opportunity to kind of move this even further. Well, I think it's funny that you said he was able to move out of New York Mm -hmm. to Pittsburgh. Right, right. He escaped New York to come to Pittsburgh to make his money. Uh, In fact, he inherited nothing from his parents, uh, his father's company. His other brothers, you know, inherited the company. Um, His father literally did not condone anything that he did um and uh which is a shame his mother did uh, she she enjoyed you know what he did but um the dad was the one with all the money and uh he uh it, it kind of shows you a not rags to riches because he wasn't necessarily poor but how if you want something you need to go out and work for it and do it yourself because you're not entitled to uh just be given opportunities and he knew that he that's exactly what he did. I mean, and that's exactly what he brought him to Pittsburgh. Um, the story goes that when he arrived in Pittsburgh at the train station itself, once he got lost, he gets off the train, he's walking around, wandering around. He has no idea where to go. He doesn't know a single person in the town. Uh, some rich, some guy approaches, like walking down the other way, um, says like, "Can I help you?" And he, and you know, those young twenty-three-year-old Westinghouse says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get to here." He says, "Well, I'm going that way. You can just follow me." And uh, this guy became a, uh, an investor who happened to be a rich man and was the first investor. And so, like, that conversation, the first day he arrived in Pittsburgh, was able to secure funding, right? To, well, that's classic Pittsburgh. Yeah, exactly. So that's uh, that's the kind of cool thing about the story is that it's a classic Pittsburgh story, you know, on how, uh, you know, these chance meetings can lead to what literally would change the world. Well, this, this person that was probably already rich mm-hmm. became richer because of his kindness yeah yeah absolutely and that, and that's the other key important factor of the story is that kindness is what separates westinghouse from all the others and, and when i say this uh in fact we'll, we'll read another uh excerpt later on um from another biography of westinghouse that talks specifically about his kindness and and just the idea of uh of how you can accomplish things without being full of greed and malice towards your employees. So uh, he started that WAPCO with about 100 people uh, here in Pittsburgh and was doing really well. Uh, he, uh, within a, a few years, uh, decided to start looking. It was almost like he was uh, not obsessive-compulsive, but he just got disinterested in what he was doing and wanted to do something else. And he would invest all of his money, 
all of his time onto a brand new project. Uh, and he did this with uh, creating the, the first automatic central telephone exchange system in 1876. Okay. Um, he also had this idea of burying telegraph wires and telephone wires and other wires, stuff like having them up in the air, but putting them underground. Uh, and that we get in that a little bit later when we start talking about his uh, AC power system, but uh, that started right then and there, too. 1881. Okay, so about ten years later, he uh, he he also is still involved with the railroads and, and still now getting more into this kind of air brake system and using that pressurized air to do things. He uh, sees that most trains, when they're traveling down the tracks, you know they have switches and signals, right? They have, they know which way to go. They know if it's safe to keep on going. If there's another train coming, you know, like what to do, what track to to jump onto, and and uh, this was all done by torches. Okay, that would be torches. lit torches that would be lit manually along the way. Uh obviously not safe, obviously not bright enough for most people to see. And uh he decided, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to run underground kind of um trigger warnings that would be generated by air pressure that would automatically switch the signals uh depending upon where the train was located." And he formed a company called Union Switch and Signal based on that in 1881 which is still around to this day, that same company. Um, he starts making a lot, and that, that, that was called the pneumatic interlocking system, is what, what that actually was called, that, that, that way of, elect, you know, electri- not electrifying, but uh, making the, the switches and the signals work simultaneously with the trains. Um, by 1884, right, he started building up enough money, uh, yet he, he was so successful with this air brake uh, that, he, he, now, I'm skipping a lot, by the way, <laughs> the story, because the people initially, the railroad companies, did not want to have anything to do with his air braking system because they thought it would slow things down and put people out of work. And, uh, you know, this new advancement technology wouldn't, uh, you know, what was going to happen to all the brakemen, right? So the uh, uh, there was a lot of pushback from this, and uh, certain uh, train systems refused to even put it on. And finally, it became a point where there were so many accidents going on that the United States made a law in Congress, that all trains must have Westinghouse air brakes on it. <laughs> so that, of course, sealed the deal, and he uh, became insanely rich off of that. Did he have anything to do with that? No, it, it, it was the fact of the, the, the of what he did was so great, and that that air braking system was so much needed that it proved that it was like a no brainer, which is kind of what happens with electricity later on. Um, he was so ahead of the game and so advanced in predicting on what people would want or need, um, and he did it all for the love of the people uh, and the advancement of the people. And he saw himself as a facilitator of these ideas. And by that time, by the time the law was passed, he was all he was way beyond the idea of of air brakes. You know, he was on to his next venture, uh, which ready for this was natural gas. <laughs> so. 1884, he's living in this giant house called Solitude, okay, and uh, with his wife. Now, he married his wife when he was 23 years old, and they say they remained married for 47 years until his death. Um, she only died a few months after him, by the way. But they um, they lived in this giant house that was near Homewood uh, called Solitude. And on this, uh, his wife was out of town, apparently, and uh, I don't know what kind of came over him, but he decided to start digging a hole in his wife's garden. Okay, deep down, 
and uh, he noticed like kind of the smell of gas. And uh, he had some helpers come and like light a match to see if it was, you know, indeed a gas, some kind of gas leak or something or whatever was coming out of the ground. And sure enough, it was. So they kept on digging down, digging down even farther until they reached about 1,500 feet under the ground. Where, yeah, so a, a big feet. hole, a big hole, yes. And uh, and sure enough, uh, like a explosion occurs, okay? Uh, you know, mud, water, the works is all shooting out of this hole. And once that kind of died down, you could hear this hissing. They lit a match and it burst into flame, <laughs> right? Um, this flame shot up hundreds of feet. But you know, lit up the entire night sky. Everybody in the neighborhood knew what was going on. His neighbors were Frick, okay, and the Heinz family. All hated Westinghouse. Frick was pissed. <laughs> yeah, they were real mad. Um, it became a spectacle. People would come down the street just to see this giant, you know, flame shooting out of the ground. And uh, he quickly, being Westinghouse, being who he was, quickly started thinking of ideas of how he could cap this gas. You know, is there a way to 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 put it out? Is there a way to contain it somehow and how can i contain it and how can i cap it and how can i measure it and how can i transport that and he did that <laughs> with filing patent after patent after patent after patent okay uh including the uh this idea of a thing called a reduction valve okay so he uh was able to put a cap you know cap the gas line and realized that you could through pipes, uh, inc- you know, decrease the size of the gas pressure, okay, by decreasing the size of the pipe and could transport this pretty far. Uh, pretty soon, Frick and Heinz were okay with them because he provided their house with free gas. <laughs> so they, uh, and they kind of left them alone. Because they needed that. Yeah. But through him, and not, not necessarily through him, but the people that he surrounded himself with, all of his other companies that he had going at the time, uh, were able to invent what they called the very first gas meter, right? Which would measure the pressure of the gas line, how much was coming out of that pipe, and uh, and the reduction valve, which realized that you could have a source that was so powerful, you know, with these you know massive fumes and ejections of gas, and you could reduce that over long distances to where it was safe enough to be piped into a building or a house, and and reduce the pressure. So it was safe gas, uh, you know, power. And um, that company, okay, which, so he, he was struggling. You need to find a corporation, right? And you need to buy these types of corporations. And he finds this one that was a defunct company called the Philadelphia Company. Now, it had nothing to do with Philadelphia. It was just the name of the company. And he buys the charter of that corporation and, you know, initiates this new gas company providing gas to the city of, uh, city of Pittsburgh. So that gas company became Equitable Gas, <laughs> um, which is still around today. Crazy, huh? The uh, So he invented, or was the founder of Equitable Gas as well, as well as Duquesne Light. So but we're, we're jumping ahead. Yes, yeah, so uh, along with all these other things, that success, of course, brought him tons of money. And um, he, along with many other people in in that time period, were fascinated by electric electricity and electric currents and and what existed out there. And, and at the time, about eighteen eighty, early eighteen eighties, like eighteen eighty two. Okay, they had this thing called arc lighting, which was like this giant, you know, really strong, really really bright single light that you could hang in the middle of your town square. Imagine like Market Square with like a canopy and a giant, you know, light bulb in the middle. And uh, that's essentially what arc lighting is. 
You could only be used in giant public spaces or huge warehouses where there was no threat of a uh, uh, of an explosion or something like this because it was still pretty unsafe because it was such a high current that was being fed to these arc lights. Uh, Edison came around and witnessed this. Thomas Edison. Okay, this is where he enters the picture. 1882. He sees that this uh, arc lighting is so strong and dangerous because people were being killed by trying to climb up the poles, utility poles, and fiddling with the wires. They would be, you know, electrocuted. And uh, he declared this, you know, totally unsafe method of providing electricity and was became the uh, kind of backer of what they called direct current technology. Direct current was a a, a good example would be I'm one mile away from you. I have a power plant. Okay, this power plant can produce energy uh, through electricity, through coal power. So I'd be feeding a coal-fired furnace, which would turn a turbine, an engine, which would provide electricity for about the distance of a mile. And that was it. So by the time it went left the factory and hit your house, by the you know, it had to be directly connected to this exact power station. It was very, very weak, the signal. And therefore, safe. Okay, um, and uh, he created the incandescent light bulb to go along with this. And, uh, well, he didn't create it. I mean, he found someone who created it and bought the patent and called it his own. <laughs> so, and this is what Edison did his entire life. Now, he did create the phonograph record, you know, and, the, and um, you know, multiple technologies, you know, which he had the backing of. But he, when he saw other people doing these things, he had enough fortitude to go find that take it and make it his own. Whereas Westinghouse did the same thing. He saw the potential in lots of different things and lots of different people. But instead of taking it and making it his own, he let the people keep it and keep that idea. And Tesla is the prime example. So let's stop right there and we'll continue the rest of the story in another episode next week. That's it for Pittman.